Hey everybody, welcome to the first official episode of the Patreon-exclusive Mutants and Monsters podcast. I want to thank you first and foremost for being a Patreon-exclusive member and getting these uh, really cool podcasts that I'm... Um, I really want to bring something special to you guys that's uh, a, a little bit different from Everyday's Halloween. A lot of these podcasts are me, me just riffing about things that are involving horror, not so much horror, sci-fi, but mainly entertainment. Um, this episode is Joe Bob Briggs. Joe Bob was uh, my first real horror host. Um, when I was younger, I always thought horror hosting was Elvira and the Crypt Keeper and funny puns. Uh, but Joe Bob really kind of opened my eyes on Monster Vision on TNT with giving you facts behind the scenes stuff before the internet really kind of took off and then everybody did it. Now there's there's panels and podcasts and things like that. But, you know, Joe Bob was in the trenches when the stuff was going on around the time when he was working for um, the Austin Tribune. And um, uh, this is a, an interview from Spooky Empire that he did uh, with a bunch of us. And I got to ask a question or two in here, which is pretty cool. Um, and yeah, so I figured I'd record it for you guys and play it here. And uh, I want to thank you guys again for being a member. Um, I'm going to try to keep putting podcasts out every two weeks. Uh, make sure to listen to that. I'm going to try and give you guys some incentives uh, with some of my art. Uh, we're going to have horror movie nights every Tuesday or Thursday. Sorry, every Thursday horror movie nights. So make sure to check out the Patreon page to see how you can um, get the little add on to your browser so you can watch those uh, movies with us every night. And uh, yeah, all right. Hope you guys enjoy this uh, very special Joe Bob Briggs episode of Mutants and Monsters. You will get extremely upset with me today if when I am politically incorrect. But um, they were also extremely upset with me in uh, um, 1982 because it was still the same stuff in 1982 that was politically incorrect. The difference is. Um, when I started out, um, the censor would come along and say, you can't say this or broadcast this or write this, um, because you're going to offend the older people, Joe Bob. <laughs> and so now that I'm one of the older people, they come along and they say, you can't say this or broadcast this or write this, because you're going to offend the younger people, Joe Bob, the millennials, the post-millennials. So what the fuck? <laughs> admire people who do stand-up comedy which is which it used to, I used to say was the last place that, in, in the world that was uncensored right. you could say anything you wanted to and, and in stand-up comedy it was okay the stand-up comedy stage was like they used to say the pulpit was protected you know the church pulpit was protected you, you couldn't sue somebody for something they said in the church pulpit and I always thought the same thing was true of stand-up comedy increasingly that's not the case you know people go with the People are working out material, and people will go with um, cell phones and, and record the material, and then try to humiliate them online or everything. But uh, but stand-up comedy is still the most free place for speech uh, in the world. And keep that up, guys. Uh, you know, offend me. You know, I, I, I that's what keeps us safe and sane. Well, do you think like the character himself was almost like a stand-up comedian? So you could say stuff because people were seeing it as not you. But as, you know what I'm saying, like an Archie Bunker? Oh, no, no. no people no, were no. pissed off. Oh, no, I got picketed. I got uh, people were always demanding that I be fired. You know, this is from the very beginning. I mean, it's like it's nothing new to me. The, the You know, they say, oh, aren't you afraid of the social media, Joe Bob? Well, actually, no. I'm more afraid of those crazy people in San Francisco that would show up and shake their fists in my face back in the 80s. What were they so offended by? Um, it was always something different. I never knew exactly what it would be. Uh, sometimes it would be the Baptists, cause, uh, or the Catholics. Actually, the Catholics were worse than the Baptists, because um, uh, a, a particular column that I wrote where I said, uh, you know, that, that great, uh, that great ca Roman Catholic double feature, I drink your blood and I eat your skin. Uh, and, and the, whatever the Catholic Defamation League is, uh, got really angry and they started, right back there. Yeah, they, they started sort of monitoring what I what I said, you know, what I what I said and wrote. Um, um, there were um, th there were every kind of. Um, Every kind of protest. Actually, the only I I made a lot of gay jokes in the early days, and that's the only group that did not protest. Uh, you know, they never um, they they never they said they always seemed to go along with the joke. You know, so I stopped picking on them because it wasn't any fun. <laughs> 
Um, when you, uh, it's funny because, you know, I, I follow, follow the science kind of idea, right? And so I had, what am I going to ask him today? The first thing I'm going to say is, you've done so much. What do you want to, well, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to be more? And then, unfortunately, I was listening to the radio and they were talking about how would you write the first line of your obit? What's the first paragraph of your obit? I'm not saying write your obit. <laughs> but what do you want to be known for? What have you done that you're most proud of or that most... I want the first line of my bit to be, he never apologized. You know, I, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that always looks back on it and 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 um, shudders and trembles at how bad it was so I'm not the person to ask about um, you know what I'm proud of because I always look at it and I wince and I go oh that could have been better oh I missed that oh I should have done that and so like I don't like to watch myself on, right. on film or TV and I don't I don't really like to reread things that I wrote uh, years ago sometimes you have to do it but you know because um, somebody wants you to talk about it, you know, but uh, I'm always just focused on the next thing, and so um, mainly out of fear <laughs> of, what, of what I might find in my past. <laughs> um, I'm going to open it up for, for you guys to ask some questions, but before I do, I think there's one question that a lot of people have, which is, what's up with Halloween 3? Oh, well, uh, you can ask Darcy the mail girl. She's here in this room somewhere. She's channeling Elvira today, so she looks like Elvira. It's actually just our cheap attempt to, to uh, you know, take pictures of her instead of Elvira. Anyway, um, no, uh, um, I, don't, I don't remember how it started, actually. I think uh, uh, it just came up, it just came up naturally because um, uh, years ago, when we, when I was showing um, the Halloween films on TNT, I ragged on Halloween three, and it turns out to be one of Darcy's. There she is. <laughs> it turns out to be one of Darcy's. Um, uh, a star. Half a star. Half a star. I gave it half a star, and because it had no Michael Myers and it had no. Uh, uh, Dr. Loomis and you know the, you know, the Halloween elements. I know now. What I did not know then is that John Carpenter was going to try to do a, a sort of a modern streaming horror thing where um, uh, where you have a different cast and a different story, or you have the same cast yet a different story, or you have you know uh, you know he, he was going to mix it up and do a you know each Halloween. Each successive Halloween movie was going to be a different theme with a different cast and everything. Well, the box office was so bad and the critical reception was so bad that um, uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill sold their interests in the in the whole uh, Halloween franchise. They sold their interest to Mustafa Akkad, who was the money guy on the original Halloween. He wasn't. Uh, he may have been the executive producer of some title like that, but he was basically the guy who raised the money. And Mustafa Akkad just wanted the Halloween franchise so that he could raise money to do his Islamic films, his big budget Islamic films, which he thought were going to bring about world peace. And he did a couple of those. And, uh, but he thought, oh, here's my cash cow that I can use for my Islamic films. So he wasn't exactly a Halloween fan. You know, but he but he he actually did believe that Michael Myers was the key to keeping the franchise along, uh, alive, and he turned out to be true. I think <laughs> you know he turned out to be right about that. Um, so anyway, so I was ragging on Halloween three. Somehow Darcy found out about that. It's one of her favorite movies. She starts a campaign to get Halloween three on the air, making my life a living hell because then I had to go had to go to the director, and the director goes to the producer and the producer goes to the Shutter curator and then the curator goes to Craig Engler, the head of Shutter, and then they try to get the money and then they try to then they go to whoever owns the rights and they try to get the rights and everything. And so the the bottom line is we failed, we totally failed in getting the rights to it and so it became worse. And so Darcy got Tom Atkins involved and Tom Atkins is all over my ass now because 
Yeah, she went to some con where Tom was there, and they they bonded, and so and so now Tom Atkins is saying, "When are you going to show Halloween three? When are you going to show Halloween 3? And so we, we got this thing going on, but we, we actually really did try to get the rights, and they're just right now the HBO has them. We tried to borrow them, you know, one time screening. No, absolutely not, you know. And so um, you know, whenever HBO gets let's let's loose of them, we'll we'll show Halloween three. I don't think, I still don't think I'll like, you know, it's like, re-watch re it, Joe Bob, if it didn't have the name Halloween on it, you'd like it, you know, okay, I'll re-watch it, but I, but I still think it's going to suck. <laughs> Those are beautiful answers, but you didn't answer the question, why is it such a bad movie? How many guys are fans of Halloween 3? Woo! I, I can't, I can't honestly answer the question because I haven't watched Halloween 3 since 1980. Four or whenever it came out. When did it come out? 1984, 1983, 82. Okay, so I watched it in 1982. I'll watch it again in 2021 when we show it. Does anyone have a copy? They can let him borrow. <laughs> sure. Well, I've got plenty of copies. You've already sent me the copy. <laughs> yeah. Halloween three does? No, that's impossible. They announced it? January put up its little streaming service for November. Halloween 3 on Shudder, though? On Shudder. It could be a Fangoria recommendation, but not on Shudder. Well, if we have it, then we'll show it. So the next question is, if they show Halloween 3 but leave you out? <laughs> well, I'm always happy to be left out, you know? Um, do we have any questions from the audience? Yeah. You, uh, you didn't start out with Joe Bob, you started out with a Latino name. Uh, yeah, that's right. When I was uh, first going to do the column, I wanted to be uh, a character called Bubba Rodriguez. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was kind of an Andy Kaufman type idea, you know, of like the uh, indeterminate race and indeterminate uh, point of view and sort of like every kind of, every kind of redneck, including uh -huh. ethnic rednecks. And, uh, and they said, eh, man, you can't do that. You know, piss off the uh, Mexican Americans, and so we can't do that. And so, so I just made it the whitest name I could think of. <laughs> Where do you think he's at? Where do you think he's having a good one? Where do I think Bubba Rodriguez is? Well, I, I included Bubba Rodriguez in the narrative. He's my lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Oh, since we're in a day and age where bonus features are all over Blu-rays and DVDs, you know, you can find any sort of information about the movie that you're watching. Like back in the 80s, it wasn't that simple. Like how did you get all this information to talk all about these movies in such a, in such a yeah. fashion? Can everybody hear that question in the back about, yeah. you know, information? Um, uh, a lot of these movies, I remember, um, uh, we didn't know where they came from because the film buyer would go over, I'm talking about the days at the movie channel in the early days of TNT, the film buyer would go over to the, say the, they had a thing called MIFID, which was the Milan um, television market where they would sell, you know, exploitation films, or, or the Cannes film market, they would sell exploitation films. People think of the Cannes Film Festival as the art films, you know, but there's 35,000 films playing in the, can film market, you know, which is uh, on the side streets at can, and so they would go over there. They would buy these um, title. They would buy them based on title. So we had one. They wouldn't even watch them, you know. So we had one called um, uh, "She's 19 and Ready." It was an Italian film. It was a dubbed Italian film. She was about 45. <laughs> But every time we showed She's 19 and Ready, we would get this huge number, this huge ratings. I'd say, oh, no, we're showing the fucking She's 19 and Ready again? And, you know, we would show it like for the fourth, fifth, sixth time. You know, I'd say, I don't have anything more to say about She's 19 and Ready. You know, she's not 19 and she's not ready. That's all I, that's all I can say. You know, and so, um, uh, so, yeah, so I don't know who made She's 19 and Ready, who really made it, because first of all, it's an Italian film, they always uh, fake the names. So it would have an English name on it. It would be an Italian uh, disguised as, a, as, as an English name, and they would, you know, change all the names of the actors, change all the names of the crew, so you wouldn't know it came from Italy. 
Um, and so we didn't know where these movies came from or who made them. And in some cases, we would not, I would know somebody that worked on them. You know, I, if, if it was a really, really cheesy, cheap movie uh, made in America, I could probably just call somebody. Because my original contact, as far as B-movies go, was Roger Corman. And many people worked for Roger Corman, like Jim Wynorski and, and, uh, uh, and uh, Fred Olin Ray and uh, other directors. So I could just call them up and say, where, where, where did this come from, Fred? You know, and what did you, you know, who, who paid for it? You know, who, you know, who is this that's in it? You know, so you could find out, um, uh, you could find out certain things over the grapevine, but uh, before the internet existed, there was really no, there were like maybe four books that were written on exploitation films. And there was, there was one great one, the Encyclopedia of Horror. It was written by an Englishman, I can't remember his name right now. But um, that was a great book. But the Psychotronic Encyclopedia was uh, a lot of times, well, yeah, okay. But it didn't, it didn't help me because a lot of times he was, all he had was the poster. And so he was just, he was just you know, reprinting stuff that was on the poster. He hadn't seen the film either. And so, um, so there, no, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of information on exploitation films because they were disposable. They were considered disposable trash, you know, once they played off for one, one week. You know, they would go through this. We had a system in the country of sub-distributors. So, uh, so uh, for example, there would be a guy, like Florida was Atlanta. So the guy in Atlanta would have uh, uh, Florida, uh, Georgia, Alabama. So he would, the sub-distributor there, would do his own ad campaign for the film, and he would um, uh, book all the theaters himself, and he would play them uh, probably for one week. And then he would send all those prints to North Carolina, because North, the North Carolina sub-distributor had North Carolina, South Carolina, and parts of Kentucky. You know, and then he would play it for a week, and then he would send it. But they would each have their own ad campaign and everything. And then once the film was gone, it was gone. You know, the reason some of these films were saved is that um, uh, the sub-distributor would go out of business, and he'd have a bunch of prints uh, in, his, in the bankruptcy court. And so the guy, so the film collectors would go into the bankruptcy court, buy all the prints, and hopefully they would eventually make their way to a film archive somewhere. But uh, some of these films literally, um, and some of them didn't survive. There's no 35 millimeter print of some of the some of these films. So uh, as recently as you know, films from 1985, 1988, or something, they might exist on some kind of um, uh, cheesy video version, you know. And they have techniques now where they kind of can fake enhance it, you know? They can like make it look, look different than it's supposed to look so that it looks like it's on film. But uh, a lot of these films uh, actually disappeared. I wonder if it, it cuts both ways. Did you ever have anyone call you out on something you had said? Like kind of like pre-fake news, fake news? Oh, all the fucking time. I mean, it's like, <laughs> oh, especially today, you know, it's like you miss one thing. I, I, like, like uh, just Friday night, I said, um, I said five different people played um, um, Michael Myers and, uh, in the original. And um, I immediately <laughs> got, got a tweet or something from somebody saying, by my count, Joe Bob, it was six people. <laughs> and named them. You know, and so, uh, you know, so, no, you know immediately when you're wrong. <laughs> How about back then, though? Could you say something that was thought to be common knowledge or, or that someone had told there you was, that you weren't able to back up? The, and then someone. There was no such thing as common. There was no such thing as common knowledge. I was the only guy writing about these movies. There was nobody. There was nobody who cared about the movies. Um, John Waters had written a book uh, that uh, celebrated some of the uh, directors. There was a guy in um, uh, New York who published a uh, uh, fanzine called uh, Sleazoid Express, and there was me. And that was it. And and we we were the only people who went and watched these movies when they came out every week. And, and so there was no body of opinion about these movies. Uh, and, and so, and, and many of them that were, um, um, you know, that we celebrated at the time, when it, it would go into like 30 years of obscurity and then suddenly become hits again. <laughs> and was that weird to then see you as an authority on a movie that 
you were just kind of like dug up, and all of a sudden, like people are people are yeah. reporting your stuff back to you. And, and you have to understand the people who were watching the movies when they were at the grindhouses and at the drive-ins are not the same people who celebrate the movies today. And by that, and by that I mean it's not the same demographic, it's not the same, uh, it's not the same audience, it's not the same type of audience, you know. Um, the, the, if, you went to the, if you went to Times Square in 19, really as late as 19, you know, 85, um, those theaters were rough. They were rough places, you know. It was people going in there for cheap thrills, and there better be kill scenes, and there better be, that's why the, the filmmakers were so much more uh, honest at the time. They were, they were, they definitely knew what had to be in the film. They knew exactly what elements had to be in the film to hold the attention of a grindhouse audience for two hours. And um, one of the things that's missing from, from uh, among guys who do, um, uh, home homages, young guys who do homages to Grindhouse films, is um, they're not greedy enough. They don't love money enough, and so they, you know they don't have the same motivation uh, as the guys who originally get the guys in Italy as well as the guys in America. Um, there were there were really three hubs, and I'm, I'm getting real nerdy. I mean, I'm getting I'm getting real deep into this now. I'm, I'm like it's like. In my opinion, there were three hubs uh, um, uh, in this order, uh, L.A., New York, and Rome. And those three places invented every uh, exploitation genre. Or if they didn't invent it, they perfected every exploitation genre. And they spun it, and they mixed it, and they... And, and, they, would, and they all knew, they, they kind of knew each other. I mean, Rome was a little bit separate. But um, but still, those guys were constantly in New York. They would have to come to New York to film the first scene of the film, you know, before they went back to Italy and did all the did, did the other ninety five percent of the film, you know, because they wanted people to believe it was in America. And so they so they knew all the same guys. They knew the grind the the time the Times Square grindhouse guys. But once you become once you become aware of the three different places, then you become aware that there are uh, um, you, you can spot them right away. The LA films are bright, they're brighter, they're, they're, they're cleaner, you know, they're more like, they're so close to the Hollywood system that they, they have Hollywood system guys working on the films. And so, yeah, Halloween, Halloween wasn't the first slasher film, but it was the first successful one because it's bright, because it's, 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 it's just, it's inoffensive. You know, it's not like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's not like uh, Night of the Living Dead. You know, indie films made out in the boonies. You know, um, and so the LA films are bright. The New York films are the opposite. They are dark as fuck. You know, and they are sleazy and they are weird and they are and they go in plot directions that you can't predict. You know, and then the Rome films are all copies of either the LA films or the New York films, but they go in weird directions too. You know, they copy it, but they say, you know, we we can't just do we can't just do Alien. We have to have a slimier version of Alien. You know, we have to have a weirder version of Alien. So we'll copy Alien. You know, all the same plot points. You know, but we'll just make it. You know, a, a, a lot dirtier. You know, and, and so that's that's what Rome did. What's that? Alien contamination. Alien contamination. Exactly. That's exactly what they did. They, they uh, um, copied copied Alien, and um, but they, you know, they they. Uh, uh, they they put that giant, whatever that giant monster is at the end. <laughs> I don't even know what it is. I don't know what you call that. They got cyclops. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, yeah, I guess it was a cyclops. Yeah. So um, uh, so anyway, so that that's the world. But the world was, but that world was all about uh, money. Yeah. You know, um, there was a there was a particular neighborhood in Rome where all these guys had cheap office space. So they would see each other. And they didn't necessarily like each other, but they judged each other by how much money their last film had made. And so it's like they would just eat them up alive if some guy that they saw every day had some movie that made $40 million. You know, they would just, and so what would they do? 
they would they would hire the same actors that he'd hired <laughs> and, and do some version of the script that he'd done, you know. So, and make it dirtier. Yeah, and make it dirtier. Which um, is funny because like then the people who are doing it now, it's art, but it wasn't art for these guys. It was money. It was hitting all the right buttons and all the right. Yeah, I mean they were they were um, they were accomplished at what they did. I mean they they were they were, but they they would not. They would not, if, if they could save a penny, they would save a penny. I mean, you know, they, they would not uh, go out of their way to, to uh, spend a lot of money just because it was the closing shot of the film. As alien contamination proves, I don't think the Cyclops even, uh, I think the Cyclops was supposed to advance and eat all the people, but they, but they couldn't make it work. They couldn't make it work, so the people had to be mesmerized so that they walked into his mouth, right? <laughs> Yes, back there. How can I get your book without selling a Oh, which which book? Um, All of them. You know, uh, before we had the uh, uh, marathon, the uh, uh, marathon last summer, uh, summer of 2018, uh, those books were selling for a penny. You know how they have those books on Amazon where they're a penny and then the shipping is two ninety nine, so it's three bucks. You know. And then uh, after the uh, marathon, because there were so few of them, everyone says, uh, is this a first edition? And I'm like, they're all first editions, but that's the thing, the second edition. You know, uh, you know um, after the marathon, uh, the, the, uh, the day after the marathon, one of them was selling for $5,000. Apparently they have an algorithm, they have an algorithm on, uh, on Amazon that if, if everybody's requesting a certain title all on the same day, so it just automatically, you know, raises the price. And so, now it's settled back down. You know, it didn't stay there. You know, it's settled back down, but they're still way too expensive. So I'm talking to my, um, um, uh, uh, he, although I'll tell you what, um, a lot of libraries throw them out all the time. So if you go to a, if you go to, if you go to a library sale, you know, where they're selling their stock, you know, they, they, a lot of people bring them to me as a Collinsville library. You know? <laughs> But um, I've been talking to my publisher about uh, possibly reprinting, and there, there's a guy, see the problem with all the stuff that I wrote is I didn't write it for one publication. So it's spread all over creation. And um, there's a, a, a friend of mine who is a journalist in Cleveland named Ben Nagy, and he's, he's a very anal guy. And so he has been gathering He's been figuring out where all the stuff was printed and making like a master spreadsheet of of all the of all the columns and articles and everything. And so the, now the problem with that is, you know, the original book Joe Webb Goes to the Drive-In is like about I don't know, it's about like 280 pages, 300 pages, and um, uh, we skipped over some of the columns. We didn't put them all in there, and that's just the first year and a half maybe of, of the columns and so first of all if we just reprinted that one and we put all the columns in there and all the material that went with the columns it'd be a 500 page book and so I you know I don't want to put out a 500 page book and then um, and then I said how much more because there's one additional book there's like the, the columns that came right after that called Joe Bob goes back to the drive-in and then there's like a vast amount of stuff that was published in the years after that. And so I said, how many books would this be if all the books were the same size as the first book? And he said, oh, no more than 12 or 13. And I'm like, we're not putting out 12 or 13 books. We gotta figure out some way to like, you know, shrink this stuff down to size and like get the highlights and you know, so, so it's a project, you know. So timeline? Because she wants her kidneys, right? Um, timeline, uh, like a year, maybe a year before we could actually get it, you know, uh, printed. And and um, my my publisher, you know, I had gone. I was off the. I was off TV for 17 years, and during that time, I was writing books. But I was writing books for like my publisher, uh, you know. <laughs> It's a publisher for Waiting for Godot and books like that, you know, <laughs> European novels and stuff. And so when I go to him, it's a guy named Morgan Intrican, he's like really famous in the publishing world. And so when I go and have lunch with Morgan and say, Morgan, 
um, you know, these uh, drive-in columns from the 80s. And he goes, what? And I said, you know, I have all these drive-in columns from the 80s that I think, I think people would buy them. And he says, uh, what, what would we do with them? I said, we would print them. <laughs> and he says, they're from the 80s? And I said, yeah. And they've already been in a book? And, he says, and I said, yeah. And he says, um, he says um, well, how many of those could we sell? Like 50? And I'm like, no, Morgan, I think we could really, you know, sell some of these. I know, I know you're busy with that French novel, that, you know, that's, 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 that's really wowing them in Zurich and everything. But, and so we have, this, we have these weird conversations where I'm saying, uh, Morgan, I know this is like not the kind of thing you would normally read, but could, could you read like maybe 10 of the reviews, you know? If I, if I picked out the 10 good ones, you know, would you read 10 of them, you know? And it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 send them to me, you know? And, and, so, and so, supposedly he's reading them. <laughs> you know? so, but I, you know, I, I have this ho sort of hoity-toity publishing company that I've always worked with, and I, I, I like them, and I like working with them, but um, I, don't, I may have to, I may have to, Break ranks with them and and and, and go back to uh, the original book was published by um, uh, Dell, which at that time was a was a cheap paperback company. Right. So. Um, <coughs> which medium did you like working in better? Did you like writing your column and kind of having you know like that instant feedback the magazine, or was it more of the, the TV and the, the reach of it? Actually, you know what I like best? I like doing my live show on stage. I like, I like the stage the best because I like to be right there uh, with the audience. You know, when you're doing something on TV, it's like there's, you're there with eight guys in a concrete room. I mean, it's, 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 it, it, it's, you have to keep up your energy, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, when you're on stage, you know, it's like you're right there with the, with the people. I, I've been traveling around with my, how Rednecks Saved Hollywood show, and uh, that's that's what I like doing um, uh, more than more than anything else. I w I was actually I was actually scared. How many how many saw the Halloween Hoot Nanny? Yeah. Um, the rest of you have to leave now. <laughs> but, um, uh, the Halloween Hoot Nanny. Um, uh, I, I wanted different movies. <laughs> I wanted I wanted some guests. All the guests said no. <laughs> uh, well, wait, can we go back? So, like, yeah. what movies did you want? What guests did you? Um, well, I wanted Halloween Three was one of the movies that I wanted. Um, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to say what guests turned me down. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know. But um, uh, so when when it got time to do the show, it was like okay. Darcy, it's just us. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I'm going to talk, and then you're going to talk, and then, you know, we're going to take stuff from the fans. And, you know, it's sort of like, sort of like when you have a, 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 a struggling radio show, what do you do? You take phone-ins. Right. <laughs> you know, and so I said, uh, why don't we do, why don't we, let's, let's like the fans like us, let's, let's use that. You know, and so, so we didn't have a lot of, uh, we didn't lot of, have a lot of material to work with. The next day, Craig Engler tells me, is the best performing um, uh, special that we've done. So you never know. You never know. <laughs> I'm going to say that we're from San Francisco and we loved your column. And I looked forward to the Sunday pink section coming and getting to read your reviews, the Joe Bob Biggs at the drive in. Oh, yeah. I Sam. rode your book around and never got it back. Oh, really? <laughs> my copy somewhere in San Francisco. When, when I had my syndicated column in the 80s, the San Francisco audience was my best audience. I used to go there. Um, um, there, was a, there was a club, there was a nightclub called Wolfgang's in yes. the, um, uh, I forget what neighborhood that is. Uh, North it, Beach. That's right, North Beach, North Beach, uh, a, a dangerous neighborhood at the time. I mean, uh, and, and and they they had punk acts, and they had me. So if there was if there was not a punk band there, then I was there. And um, um, uh, and, I, and it was Phil Graham's club. I mean, he had uh, you know he was a famous um, concert promoter, but he also had small you know nightclubs. And um, every time I would go there, there would be it would it would be great. Now, what's interesting to me is that um, 
San Francisco was always accepting of uh, anything that was different, you know? And so at the time, I was considered different, you know? And then, as the years went on, San Francisco became more and more, I would say, judgmental of, <laughs> of the kind of acts that play there. You know, and so I'm not sure I would be that well received today in San Francisco. You know, because I, I normally do that redneck show in redneck places. Uh, but but um, uh, but at the time, you know, I, I uh, it was of course it was the heyday of like uh, Robin Williams was there, and and you 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 would just see him around. You know, it wasn't like he wasn't a big star. You would just see Robin Williams around. He would be working out at clubs. You know, in San Francisco. And um, it was a it was a very free uh, atmosphere. Um, Carol Dota was still on stage. Uh, the Twin Peaks, the original, the original topless dancer, the original go-go dancer. She was she had her own club and everything. And uh, she came to one of my shows, and we gave her a lifetime achievement award. We gave her, we gave her two lifetime achievement awards. <laughs> areas or in the cities and has that changed? I used to only do it in the south. I used to only do it in places that love their Confederate monuments. And then, and then uh, uh, this guy asked me to do it in Boston and I went up there and did it at the Coolidge Corner Theater in, um, in Boston and they didn't kill me. And so, uh, I, so since then I've done it everywhere. I mean, I've done it in Minneapolis, Portland, uh, you know, Milwaukee, places that are decidedly not, right. not a redneck. But I'll tell you what, every redneck in town shows up, so. <laughs> I've been living in that area for, for most of my life. I can't imagine any rednecks in the foolish corner, so. Oh, oh yeah. I, well, I said, I said, um, I said to the manager, I said, you know, make sure every redneck in Boston shows up, and, you know, both of them. And, and, he, <laughs> and he said, oh, no, we have rednecks. He said, now they're going to be Irish. And I said, oh, that's the best kind. Send them. <laughs> how you deal with all the different things you do professionally. Like, is there a little part of your brain thinking about, you know, horror movies, a little part of your brain thinking about satellites at the same time? Or do you do, like, different things? Oh, well, you're, you're referring to that, uh, um, uh, really serious book I did on the satellites, which was, um, uh, I, I will never do a book about science or engineering ever again. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just start with that. Um, that was the hardest thing I ever wrote. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I, I, I have always just um, uh, followed the money. <laughs> you know, uh, um, I can't really do that much while I'm doing this Shutter stuff because um, uh, Shutter is pretty, it's a pretty demanding uh, uh, schedule to keep it well. The, the combination of doing the doing the uh, streaming show and doing um, my live show is uh, kind of like taking taking all my time. I'm supposed to be writing a book, and I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, back there in the green. I just wanted to remark that we found you way back, like 1990. They used to your column in the Stars and Stripes newspapers for the military. That's and, right. And how popular you were with all of us rednecks in the military. I had a lot of fans. I had a lot of fans at Stars and Stripes, the, the overseas newspaper for the uh, American Armed Services. And um, uh, this is something that happened to me. It's happened to me I, I, 10 times at various uh, publications. Um, uh, someone becomes, they get a new editor, and, and the new editor um, feels like traditional, um, the traditional role of the publication is wrong, <laughs> and that I'm the symbol of the wrongness. <laughs> and so, uh, so I was eventually dropped from the Stars and Stripes, but I was in there for years. Um, uh, and uh, uh, and I have a lot of uh, military uh, uh, fans to this day. We just read a letter on the air Friday night about you know some guys at Fort Stewart that were uh, violating their orders. <laughs> they were supposed to be on maneuvers, learning how to do night vision driving, and uh, uh, and one of them said, 
um, you know, said to the sergeant, um, Sergeant, it's 2100, meaning it's nine o'clock on Friday night. <laughs> and they put the, they put the, uh, they put his uh, 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 Android phone in his helmet so they could watch uh, Last Drive-In. <laughs> so they could all gather around in the woods, <laughs> 15 soldiers at Fort Stewart uh, watching Last Drive-In. Uh, <laughs> and so, yeah, I have, I've always had a good, uh, a good military audience. Has there ever been a movie that was so bad, you didn't want to approach it, or you didn't know how to approach it, or... <laughs> well, you know what, you know, it's too good, and it was like you couldn't find it in. You know, toward, towards the end of my years at TNT, they were switching over from, they wanted to be a, a female-friendly um, uh, channel. Yep. That was the marketing research. They said, we want to go from being, uh, they were like 55% male, 45% female. We want to go to 60% female because that was going to be more money for them. And so they were trying to make me more female friendly because apparently whatever whatever numbers they had on my show showed um, you know that I was like way over the limit in terms of males com compared to females, which would actually comport with what the horror audience was. I mean, the horror audience was you know overwhelmingly male. But anyway, um, they. Um, uh, they started making me show mainstream Hollywood movies. I showed fucking Look Who's Talking To. <laughs> and uh, that was just the beginning of the end for me at, uh, at TNT. That just didn't work at all. So, yeah. Question? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I saw your by Cinemasker and Monster Madness. Do you remember that? What's that? Monster Madness, you James Rolfe, yeah. Yeah. He talked great detail about your show. So what do you think about him? Because I think he's a perfect like horror team person. James Rolfe is great. For those of you who don't know James Rolfe, he does Cinemassacre. Uh, his, 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 um, uh, he's, the, he's the angry video game nerd. And, um, uh, and before we did the marathon, the, fir the first marathon on Shudder, um, which Shutter was not that excited about, <laughs> you know, they were not that excited about doing it. Um, James Rolfe did a series of interviews with me that, you know, completely, um, you know, sort of put us over the top in terms of introducing me to people that had never seen the show. Because I, I was fine with all the people that had seen, had seen Monster Vision, because let's face it, I was just going to do Monster Vision all over again. I wasn't going to, it's not like we were changing anything about it. But um, uh, but for the uh, generation that came after, um, James Rolfe really brought a huge number of viewers to that original marathon. So I, I can't I can't thank him enough. And what he does is similar to what I do. He just does it for the, vid the world of video right. video games. Um, so um, yeah, I'm I'm a great admirer of James Rolfe. He he came to my Redneck show, by the way. <laughs> I did it in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, the Blob Theater, where they have Blob Fest every year. And uh, James Rolfe is there. So. Yeah. Uh, when you talk with Craig over at Shutter, um, do, do you give him like a list of films you would like to see show up so that way you can rebuttal the time of Oh yeah, oh yeah, we oh yeah, we give them films that we want to see all the time. I mean, now you don't really talk to Craig. You talk, you talk to people under Craig, um, uh, but um, uh, you know uh, Sam Zimmerman is the curator. If you want to follow somebody that you can, if, if you if you want to if you want to hound somebody about a movie <laughs> that you want to see on Shutter, Sam Zimmerman. But actually, the best thing to do is just just hound Darcy. Because Darcy will, first of all, first of all, she's she knows every film. I mean, uh, uh, and and she'll she'll tell me about films that I'm not aware that they're that popular because I saw them at a time when they were not popular, and then they became popular later. You know, so she'll tell me about films that are you know this film's having a resurgence. Suddenly, people want to see this film again. You know, even though it's 30 years old or whatever, and so. Um, she tells me, and then I tell Austin Jennings, the director, 
and then the director tells Sam Zimmerman, the curator, and then Sam Zimmerman tries to get the money from uh, Craig. Now we, we assume he's trying to get the money from Craig. You know, we don't know what he's doing really. But um, but uh, that's that's kind of how that's kind of how it works. And we're not the biggest the, we're not the biggest dog in the pound. You know, uh, when it comes to people that want to license these movies, uh, there's a lot uh, you know bigger players that want to that sometimes want the same movies that we want. So. Well, they're films in public domain, and that doesn't matter. I mean, they're films that are that are old in the, um, you know, uh, public domain films are, are 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 dicey, because on the one hand you just show the film, on the other hand somebody is selling you their version of the film, somebody is selling you their copy of the film, right? And you say so you got to make them happy, and then. The, the lawyer is going to tell you somebody's going to claim this film. We shouldn't buy this film. Somebody's going to claim this film, and then we're going to owe this, all this back money for all the times we showed it. And so they're kind of afraid of, of the of the free films. They would rather pay somebody for a film where the, where they absolutely know they have the rights than to, than to show a free film. But um, uh, but yeah, th those films tend to be older, although not always. Not always. Um, uh, you know, certainly. Uh, if you wanted to show the Universal Monster films, uh, those are going to be expensive, you know, so. Has there been a movie that you've dramatically changed, like on a second viewing, like you absolutely loved it, but you found it amazing, or the opposite, like you absolutely hated it, and then you fell in love with it, like, either because it got popular, so there was a resurgence, you had to go into it again, or whatever? No. <laughs> I, you know, I, I tend to... Tend to I mean, one opinion and that's it? Well, I, you know, when I watch it, I watch it, I, I watch it, you know, I watch it intently, and um, I might, you know, move it from two stars to three stars, or three stars to two stars or something, but, you know, I, no, I don't, I don't think my opinion changes violently from, from uh, uh, just because it becomes popular or just because it becomes unpopular or whatever. Um, you know, there are entire genres of film that have that have uh, that have uh, disappeared. You know, like um, that I that I enjoyed, like uh, the four guys trying to get laid film, or whatever you call that, the high school sex farce, or the college sex farce, or whatever. You know, four guys on vac on spring vacation, they're all trying to get laid. They don't get laid. None of them get laid. But, but there are all these uh, you know zany adventures with girls in bikinis, and so that was a genre for a long time. And it was uh, there were variations of Tom Cruise's first movie was one of those. Uh, what, is, what is this movie? Um, what is it? Losing it. Losing it. Losing it. Wasn't that the movie? Losing it, where Tom Cruise and a bunch of guys go down to Tijuana, right? Um, and then that. And then I was talking to Jim Wynorski, who made quite a few of those, and I said, "Hey, Jim, um, uh, uh, you ever get a script for, a, for for one of those today?" And he says. Yeah, I do, and I would never make one. That's suicide. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just a dead genre. It's totally dead genre. You know, and so um, uh, uh, now horror. I interestingly, the horror audience um, loves the bad ones almost as much as the good ones, and so the subgenres don't disappear. For for example, you would expect the cannibal genre to be gone, right? No, it just gets stronger. But if they're not making any new ones, it's not like they're going down to South America and killing killing more animals so they can make more cannibals. There aren't any new. There's no. There's nobody who comes out of film school and says, "Okay, we're leaving for Lima tomorrow. You know, we're moving the crew into the jungle. We're going to hack some heads off some turtles. We're going to make one of these one of these uh, cannibal movies." You know, no. There's, there's like nobody will ever make another one, and yet the old ones, you know. Are considered are, are increasingly considered you know cult classics you know and uh, the people who made them were pretty vile people I mean they were, you know there, there's not much you know there wasn't much um, uh, you know Ruggiero Deodato yes you know not a nice guy <laughs> not not one of the supreme uh, you know uh, uh, you know you know not a cuddly guy you know it's like but you know but he has this. this this niche where he's famous, and, and if you look at his previous films and the films he made afterwards, kind of a hack, kind of a hack. But 
but the one that he, but the one that the movie that he's known for, you know, actually, I think there's three of them. I think he made, I think he actually made, he made at least three, maybe 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 four. Um, uh, you know, I'm sure he thought, uh, you know, it was one-time deal. We're going to make a lot of money on this, and see, here he is coming back for retrospectives 40 years later, however long. set up a um, uh, distribution company called Bryanston Pictures, and they started acquiring not just exploitation pictures. I mean, the two most famous pictures that they distributed were um, Deep Throat, which is what got them into the business to begin with. They couldn't believe the kind of money that the movie made. And then the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, wow. Well, they had so much mo uh, money from those two films that they started buying sort of quote, legitimate films to, to make sure that the front was intact, you know, so that, so that, um, uh, you know, a typical, uh, uh, typical mob operation where you, um, uh, you pay a hundred dollars, you know, you pay somebody a hundred dollars, um, and you tell them they're going to get a hundred dollars every year, and then, uh, the second year they don't get anything. And you've just bought the thing for a hundred dollars. I mean, that's that's the way they do it, and so um, uh, so that's why we don't know how much money the Texas Chainsaw Massacre made. But the forensic accountants who have been in there on it, you know, over the years, uh, think that it's probably the most successful uh, independent film in history because it played in so many different countries. It played all over the world. Um, and it, and it played under many different titles and in many different cuts, and they would send it anywhere. You know, so. Yeah, uh, two things. Uh, so for cannibal movies, there was one kind of recently, Green Inferno, Eli Roth. That's true. That's about the only one I can think of. But when are you bringing your redneck show to Florida? Yeah. Well, I did it in Jacksonville just recently. I did it a couple a couple shows in in um, uh, at the Repertory Theater there in Jacksonville. Um, send me some venues that we can contact, and I'll, I'll, I would, I would love to bring it to uh, Tampa or Orlando or Tallahassee or Fort Myers. <laughs> Fort Myers, uh, no. <laughs> Marathon uh, at Shutter. Were you expecting it to be a success, or were you thinking? No, no, first? I didn't expect the whole concept to be a success. I mean, I was, I was the skeptic. You know, uh, Matt Man Mangerides, a guy who worked for Troma his whole life, and uh, Austin, <laughs> and Austin Jennings, a guy who's worked mostly for uh, MTV uh, his, most of his life. He does the. Uh, he has those pregnancy shows. Um, uh, they came to me and said, you know, we want to take this to Shutter. And, I mean, 20 people have come to me over the years and said, you know, I want to take this to somebody. I'm a TV executive. I want to put this on this network. I want to do this. I want to do that. Now I say yes. I say, yeah, yeah, let's go. Uh, and then I never see him again. And so these were the two lamest guys yet. Because, uh, yeah, all right, you work for Troma, you know, you do the pregnancy shows for TV. Okay, good. So, um, so uh, we had lunch, and um, I liked him. I, and and uh, I said, sure, go with it. And um, sure enough, a month later, some uh, shutter guy shows up, and he wants to have lunch, you know. And so we decided we would do a 54-hour marathon. Because they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, there's no reason to come back unless we do 
something big, you know. So we wanted to do a 54-hour marathon. It's like the um, uh, like the Jerry Lewis telethon, <laughs> the old Jerry Lewis telethon, where he would stay up, you know, for for all Labor Day weekend, you know. And so, and I said, and let's do it on Labor Day weekend, you know, and um, and make it a full a full out parody of the of the old Jerry Lewis telethon. So that was the concept. And you know, we said, how many movies is that? You know, and it was a lot. It was like I don't know. I think it was like 20, 28 movies. I think it was, I think it was going to be twenty eight movies. And so um, uh, we started working on that, and um, it, it, it got it got canceled. They had a management change. It got canceled, and um, uh, which frequently happens in TV. You know, it, a new group comes in. They don't want to do that. And so um, uh, we got the call on one Friday, you know, I'll stop working on it, we're not going to do it. And um, uh, I, I, an executive named Owen Shiflett at, at Shutter uh, says, I tell you what, he says, I've got $30,000 in a slush fund, slush fund. He says, don't kill me. You know, they, you know, I, I know you. I know. I know. There's very little you can do with thirty thousand dollars. He says, but um, and don't say no immediately. Think about it over the weekend. And so we got off the phone. We get, we got off the phone. So, as soon as we're off the phone, uh, I said to Matt Nelson, "Fuck no! Fuck no! You can't do shit with that. You know what are you gonna do? One movie? You know, it's like you know you can't even build the set for that. You know." And, and they're like, yeah, we kind of agree with you. We kind of have to walk away. And, and so uh, that was on a Friday. On Sunday morning, um, uh, Austin and Matt called me and they said, they said, well, you know, the, the, the landscape has changed a little bit. Um, all the crew will work for free. And I said, well, fuck you. I have to write the thing now. <laughs> And so, and so they said, you know, we, we and they're saying we think we can do like a triple, feature. and I'm saying triple features like walking on. That's like a guest spot. You know, that's like being on the Ellen DeGeneres show for, for ten minutes. It's like that's stupid. You know, and so I said, we can, well, what do you think we have to do? I said, well, I think we got to do at least 24 hours. It's got to be something big. You know, and uh, so they said, okay, if you think you can do 24 hours, we'll do 24 hours. And so, um, and so, you know, that's how it happened. We we had a, we didn't have a studio, we didn't have a set, we didn't have anything. And so, and I said, and I said, what what, what kind of show do you want to do? And they were like Monster Vision. And I was like, okay, but you know, what are we going to do to update it? Nothing. <laughs> well, you can't do that in TV. You can't go back 20 years. You know, they're like. Um, no, that's what we're going to do. Exactly. <laughs> same show, exact same show. They're like, okay, well, at least I know how to write it, you know? <laughs> and so, and so uh, we started putting it together, and uh, Matt knew the people that do a, a reality show called Ink Master, mm -hmm. the, the, tattoo, the tattoo reality show. Yeah. And Ink Master has a uh, abandoned factory that they use as their studio in the slums of Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> and they said, We'll give you a room. You can have a little room <laughs> in our abandoned factory. And so I'll never forget. Uh, we go and we're like, we're all set up, and uh, we have a. Uh, I said, "Who's going to build the set?" Oh, um, um, this Japanese guy is going to build a set. He said, "What?" I said, "He's going to reproduce Monster Vision." Well, he's not just an average Japanese guy. He's like, he's completely into. Uh, Western cowboy stuff. He owns more bolo ties than you do. And that was this guy named Yuki Nakamura, who's still to this day the, the set designer. On, and, and, and it's true, he had more bolos than I do. He had more, he had more Western wear than me. We call him the Tokyo Cowboy, and he really is. He's the Tokyo Cowboy. And so he, he built that original set on that small room. Uh, we hardly even had room for, you know, it was supposed to be a three-camera shoot. We only had room for two cameras, <laughs> and so, uh, and so, uh, on the first day, on, 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 we're, we're getting there to, to get ready to shoot it, and um, Felissa Rose shows up, our main guest for the for the thing, and she says, uh, "This is really special, Joe Bob. 
And I said, what do you mean? He says, I've, I just have this feeling, this is really special. And I said, Felicity, do you realize we're in the slums of Newark? We have no money. We don't even have a, a, an accurate set. You know, the camera, the third camera doesn't work. Have you noticed any of these things? And she, oh, I just think it's special. <laughs> and so that's why we made, you know, Felicity a permanent part of the, Felicity's good luck. You know, she's a permanent part of the show. <laughs> There you have it, an interview with the man himself, Joe Bob Briggs. This was a lot of fun. Like I said, I'll be giving more interviews and shows every uh, two weeks here on the Patreon. Make sure to like and subscribe to all my other shows, including the Everyday Italian Podcast and the Space Dragon Podcast. Uh, December 6th, if you're going to be out in Orlando, make sure to come out to the Krampus Fest, where I'll be selling a lot of my art, um, jack-o'-lanterns, and ghosts for your Christmas trees. Uh, thank you again for listening, and uh, yeah, make sure to jump into the Discord uh, every night where I'm streaming uh, a spooky game. All right, everyone, take it easy, stay scary.